Hello, meow, and welcome to episode 25. Episode 25 in the year 2525. Episode 25 of The Way It Is, the official Bobby Galinsky podcast. How many of you remember the year 2525? Some of you would. That was Zager and Evans, the prototype one-hit wonder. Two boys born in Lincoln, Nebraska, a pretty pathetic area, really. And it's where the University of Nebraska is, which should be... I can't even start. I can't even start there. But um, I can't get that song out of my head. And um, one of them's still alive and making guitars in Lincoln, Nebraska. So um, that's how we're going to start the show, with obscurity and niceness. But you weren't nice about Lincoln. Hey, I was nice about Lincoln, if you've ever been there. Trust me on that one. And today starts seven weeks straight of no U.S. election news, unless something absolutely, you know, breaking news, life-affirming comes forward. Um, as I shared, going to have a bit of a moratorium on that until the last 10 days before the election. Then I am going full flamethrower alert. I mean, people in Beirut that lived by the harbor where that, uh, you know, ammonium nitrous hydroxide or whatever it was blew up, they got off light compared to how I'm going um, before the election. But no, you got seven weeks off. And you know what? We got another seven weeks off here on lockdown with Dan Andrews. And as some of you would have seen on social media, not not putting out the hate anymore. I'm just letting that go. I've actually folded my cards on that one. There's nothing we can do. He's just going to do what he's going to do to try and get rid of the virus, which I disagree with pretty much everything, but I've let it go. No use fighting, no use being angry, and just kind of concentrate on my universe, my family's universe, of every positive, powerful, self-affirming, pleasurable, happy, and positive thing I can in my life. So uh, as Nelson Mandela would have done in prison when he knew he was locked down for for a bit, pretty similar. I think he got out for more exercise than we did and didn't have a curfew. But um, so that's it, just positivity. You won't hear a thing. You won't hear a thing for seven weeks. So it's family friendly. There's no adult content necessary. Democrats are welcome. Everyone's welcome. And uh, it's been a pretty um, interesting week. Interesting week. My wife and I had an anniversary, which was lovely. And um, the birds are singing and the bees were buzzing and it's been springtime here. Melbourne is absolutely gorgeous in the spring. All the trees blooming, cherry blossoms blooming, azaleas, um, just stunning. So you go for a walk in the morning and the aromas are amazing. And even a bit of night blooming jasmine, which is a bit early this year, it usually doesn't come out till late spring, has been hinted out um, at night. Yes, we've been out past curfew, which is 8 p.m., but in our own, in our own courtyard, at night. So, well, how did you recover from last week's show? I know that some people were a bit freaked out that it was seventy-five minutes long when usually these come in at about sixty minutes. But I thought, you know what? It's a podcast. You can stop it. You can binge it. You can do whatever. 
The comments were great. And by the way, we'll get this out of the way. If you want to leave a comment or something like that, um, just go to thewayitis.blueberry.net. Thewayitis.blueberry, and that's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.net. And you can go to the show notes and leave a comment, which will be moderated. So play nice. and uh, Or to the Facebook site or anything like that. And if you haven't subscribed, if you're new, please subscribe. We're growing every week, and we got some heavy hitters that uh, are on board. And we've got a real heavy hitter for an interview coming up in a couple weeks, which I'm pretty excited, which we'll share later. And uh, today, we're covering everything. We're going to talk about fire ants. We're going to talk about exploding Porsches. We're going to talk about First Amendment privacy issues where you're all your information is being scanned by the Chinese. And we're going to uh, talk about a new chapter we have called In Case You Missed It, which instead of just doing boring new film reviews and new TV reviews, which we'll con continue to do to be on the leading edge of what's going on. But each week I find a new film or TV show, I should not new, but uh, rediscover one that's really slipped through the cracks over the past decade. People say, wow, they've never seen that. I know a lot of my friends have never seen it. It happens every week. And these are things that are just astonishing. But for whatever reason, bad release dates uh, came up against other big movies, so nobody went and saw it. Just was on the cusp before streaming or at the end of DVD or before DVD and after video cassette that... Uh, it just didn't get the attention it deserved, kind of like me as a child. But uh, we'll be touching on those, and you'll have some great, great discovery. We'll talk a bit about sports, and we will talk about the most bizarre thing I've seen in the entertainment industry in like forever. And that was Wednesday's announcement from the board of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Yes, you heard it here first. And that's the Oscars' new representation, inclusion, diversity initiative, which means that starting in 2022 and 2023, for the 94th and 95th Oscar ceremonies, the initiative will announce new representation and inclusion standards to be eligible for the Best Picture category. What does that really mean in simple English? In simple English, this means that for a number of years, the Academy has struggled to nominate films that are diverse in its cast, directors and technical craftspeople. So in 2016, after they failed to nominate any person of color among their 20 acting nominees, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was the Academy president at the time, took historic action by committing to doubling the number of women and diverse members by 2020, which they achieved, which is great. However, goodbye merit, hello participation medals, because as of 2022, unless you have a lead actor or significant supporting actor who is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group, such as Asian, Hispanic, Latin, Black, African-American, Indigenous, Native American, Alaskan Native, 
Eskimos as we call them, Middle Eastern, North African, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander or any other underrepresented race or ethnicity, and a general ensemble cast of which 30%, a third of all actors in secondary and more minor roles are from at least two of these groups, women, racial or ethnic group, LGBTQ+, or people with cognitive, people with cognitive uh, or physical disabilities. Well, Joe Biden will have a, a career after this. Um, or who are deaf or hard of hearing. And the main storyline and subject matter must, the main line, theme or narrative, must, 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 is centered on an underrepresented under, under group, including women, racial or ethnic group, LGBTQ+, or once again, people with cognitive or physical disabilities, or who are deaf or hard of hearing. Now, this continues on, past cast, past supporting actors, everything, and even past main storyline and subject matter into standard B, creative leadership and project team. So, casting directors, cinematographers, composers, Custom designers, director, editor, hairstylist, makeup artist, producer, production designer, set decorator, you know, Coke distributor, hookers, hairdressers, whatever. They have all got to have people, at least 30% coming from these groups. I could read through this, which is about 170,000 pages of stuff. But really, I'm all for inclusiveness, but that's based, as you know, on merit. So if I got the choice between two people and casting a film or producing a film or whatever like that, and one of them is, you know, white, cisgender, male, or the other is transsexual, part owl, part flipper, <coughs> flipper, get down, um, with one leg and in a defining relationship with a man-eating shark, I will give the I will give the nod to the latter. All things being equal, but I don't want to be forced to do that. This is just madness, absolute madness. So, you heard it here first. All you need to do is go down through the list of best picture nominees and winners the past fifteen years, and from my cursory examination, about sixty-five percent would not be eligible. That having been said, this is only the qualify for the best picture in the Oscars, so people can still make any film they want, but if they want to be considered, it's going to affect them. And a lot of contracts are based on bumps and awards about being considered for best picture and getting bonuses. So we'll see how it goes. Well, I can tell you, we got a lot more of the fear than fear itself based on the previous announcement, but the signals today in history. And for those of you that are new listeners, that's on this day in earlier times, like way back when. And we're going to keep it kind of brief this week because last week we just went crazy with history today. A couple things happened. Some people did something. Back in 1297... 
the battle at Stirling Bridge. Scottish rebel, Scottish rebel. William Wallace defeated the English. And of course, Mel Gibson reprised that in Braveheart. In 1875, whoa, we jumped 600 years. That's how, that's how we're rushing through this one. We got way more important stuff. In 1875, the first newspaper cartoon strip. I never was really a fan of newspaper cartoon strips. I used to like Peanuts as a kid, and uh, my mom and dad were just enthralled with them. Maybe it was the era that, you know, growing up in the 20s and 30s, but they used to love cartoon strips in the Sunday paper. Um, 1966. I got some satisfaction. The Rolling Stones performed on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then all the way in 2001, on this day in 2001, September 11th, let's see, let's see. Hmm, something happened. Some people did something, according to Somalian terrorist Ilan Omar, who's also known as, you know, a member of Congress in Minnesota. In 2001, I can't believe it's been 19 years. Two passenger planes hijacked by al-Qaeda terrorists crashed into the World Trade Centers, causing the collapse of both and the deaths of over 2,600 people. Also on the same day, they hijacked a passenger plane and crashed it into the Pentagon, causing the deaths of 125. And concurrently, attempt by passengers and crew of United Airlines Flight 93 to retake control of their hijacked plane from terrorists caused the plane to crash in Pennsylvania in a field, killing all 64 people on board. By the way, if you haven't seen Flight 93, astonishing film. Astonishing film. That was directed by Paul Greengrass, the, the Brit, who's also known for uh, the Jason Bourne, the Bourne Ultimatum, the Bourne Supremacy, um, Bourne in the USA, and uh, Captain Phillips, who's your captain now? And uh, Bloody Sunday, as well as many others. Fantastic direct director. And uh, amazing thing. I was on an Etihad flight. Etihad is uh, the uh, official airline of the United Arab Emirates. And um, I was on my way to Dubai. And this was about 2010 or 2011. And one of the in-flight movies was United 93. I am dead set serious. I could, you know, in my ironic, satirical dreams, to have a flight about, or a film about hijackers crashing on a flight. That's like my dream. And only the Arabs would have that as the in-flight movie. I even took a screenshot of it on the little in-flight business class thing because I figured nobody would believe me in a picture of the magazine, which I'll post in the show notes if I can find it. But what I think actually happened, I don't think it was so much deliberate as um, studio distributors and um, uh, packagers would have packaged, oh, here's like 30 films for the airline and you get this and this and this, all these new releases, and then you get a couple more with it. So, you know, who would have ordered the films from Dubai probably wouldn't have even known what he or she was getting. Or, if they were really cool, they probably did know what they were getting and scheduled it on there thinking, this will be a big surprise for any American Jew traveling on our airline. Ha, ha, ha. You will relive it again. Anyway, that was pretty epic. So, some people did something. Um, and, kind of reprising all that terrorism just a few hours ago in Paris, the trial opened on the Charlie Hebdo trial, the comic 
magazine that had the massacre in 2015 and the 14 accomplices of those absolute mongrel mutts that are on trial um, is taking place right now as you listen to this. Yes, the religion of peace. Now, birthdays. D.H. Lawrence today, awesome author. Ed Sable, creator of NFL films. Ferdinand Marcos, whose wife, um, Amelda, put uh, high-heeled shoes on the planet. Tom Landry, legendary football coach. And Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, his birthday today, very, very good Virgo birthday, very detailed kind of guy. And Harry Connick Jr., as well as William Bly, who was the sadistic sea captain who drove men to mutiny on the bounty. Now, deaths today. Johnny Unitas, Johnny U, super number 12 from the Baltimore Colts. When I was a kid, I had an NFL uniform with Johnny Unitas's Baltimore Colts logos and everything on it that uh, my folks bought me from Sportsman's. 413 Nebraska Street, Sioux City, Iowa. Don't know if that's there anymore, but uh, I love that. However, um, I didn't like getting hit. And while I tried to play quarterback as a young kid, I got hit a lot. And I didn't like it. So I said, fuck football. Baseball's a little better. You get to throw the ball at people's heads. In 1965, the Monkees debuted. Hey, hey, we're the Monkees. Who didn't love that TV show? Now, on this day in 1929, sorry, 1928 in sports. Can't you read? New glasses. Ty Cobb had his last hitting appearance. He popped out against the Yankees. What an ignoble way to end a career. But Lou Brock, the legendary Lou Brock, oh, I worship Lou Brock, passed away earlier this week, who had 938 stolen bases, old number 20, who took over Ty Cobb's stolen base record. Now, a little bit of uh, history there. When October 2nd rolls around in a couple weeks, on October 2nd, 1968, my dad and mom took me down to St. Louis. They took me, I'll never forget this, one of the highlights of my life. They took me out of school. It was a Wednesday. I had to look it up, but it was a Wednesday. And my mom went shopping and my dad took me to Bush Stadium to see the St. Louis Cardinals in the opening game of the 1968 World Series. They smashed the Detroit Tigers for the nothing. And Lou Brock was my hero back then, and I love the Cardinals. It was one of the most epic father-son, actually one of the few father-son things that I can really remember that my dad did with me. But it was unbelievable and that the cards were up three games to one and ended up losing the series in the seventh game which just crippled me just crippled me fucking hate the tigers but uh and there were some dodgy calls there lou brock was called out at home trying to steal home and um probably one of the worst calls in history not as bad as the oakland raiders immaculate conception franco harris you know fake catch pittsburgh steelers thing um I hope Franco Harris had a horrible life after that. I should look it up on Wikipedia, see what happened to him. But anyway, that's, uh, that was October 2nd, 1968. And um, one of the coolest father-son things 
ever, never forget it. My my brother was at college somewhere or doing something, maybe out in L.A., because he was seven years old or so. He missed out. Sad for him. So that just about wraps up everything on Today in History. So that was 1968. Now, 1971, I'm going to take you back to picturesque Sioux City, Iowa, the heartland where I grew up. For those of you that have listened to the podcast from day one, you know all about Sioux City, Iowa. But if you're new to the podcast, first of all, stop and subscribe, please. Thank you. (sighs) Just do it. And uh, yes, I'm an Iowa boy, farm boy. Field of Dreams, not as good looking as Kevin Costner. Maybe now, as I compare him, I'm watching a bit of Yellowstone. It's hard to tell us apart. It really is hard to tell us apart, though he's got a better voice than me. But he doesn't have a podcast. Anyway, 1971, um, my folks packed up the station wagon, and I packed up the Porsche. I had the mid-engine Porsche that I had bought that summer, And we were going out to University of Colorado, where I was accepted, because of my brilliant student scores, of course, and my, you know, prowess. And uh, as I shared in earlier podcasts, we've been to many, many different universities that I'd gotten accepted to, to check them out around the West in the country. And Boulder, Colorado, the number one party school of the year for Playboy magazine, height of the Vietnam War, absolute madness and coolness and skiing, and proximity to Sioux City so I could visit for my mom, seemed to be the best choice. Now, I had been saving and saving and saving and saving for a car for the better part of a year. Um, When my grandmother passed away, she gave me a little bit of money, and I worked pretty much full-time after school at the Sportsman's Camera, 413 Nebraska Street, Sioux City, Iowa, for a uh, variety of people. And uh, I remember Jim Lally and Bert, and some other names from there, and Honey Rogers and Bobby Rogers, who could be listening now. It was the best place in the world to work because I could just shoot down there after school and um, lose money because I spent more on Nikon equipment and film and processing and stuff than I ever made. In fact, I think um, Bob Rogers, the owner, actually called my dad one day and goes, you know, your son's losing money working here. He'll never get a paycheck. Um, which is kind of the story of my life. But uh, I've been saving and saving and saving, and I was originally going to buy a 1971 Datsun 240Z, which to me was the coolest car. Bright yellow with black stripes. It seemed to be the it car. And um, my dad and I went down to a place called Bob Taggett's Pontiac, and we put a deposit down. It's my money, and we ordered it. Anyway, better part of nine months went by, and one had come in, and it was in the showroom, but Bob Taggett said it wasn't for sale, wasn't for sale, it was just a demonstrator and stuff like that. And after waiting and waiting and waiting and getting the runaround, um, my dad went down there and said, what's the story on this? And it turned out that, you know, he'd taken about 90 deposits from people, and other people had gotten their cars, and he sold the demonstrator to someone else. And uh, my dad went mental and got the deposit back. So that was my first experience dealing with car dealerships. I've had good luck myself, but that one um, was a bit dodgy. Don't know if Bob Taggett's, if you're still alive, not happy. Doubt that you are. Anyway, so second choice, and I'm glad it was, you know, some things happen for a reason, 
is the mid-engine Porsche, the 914, 914-6 era, which was the first mid-engine Porsche built um, for the consumer market. And I love that car. I almost chose it over the 240Z, but I deflected just because the Z was the hotness. But then when I went off the Z, um, I went down to Simpson Volkswagen Porsche Audi. Yes, there used to be a Porsche dealer in Sioux City and bought one right then and there that day that we got my deposit back because I, that money was burning a hole in my pocket. And it was like two weeks before I was going to university and there was no way I was going to university without a car. It was tangerine orange with black stripes and tan leather. And oh, it was unbelievable. And I thought, this is it. Not only will I be a Porsche driver, just like, you know, at Le Mans. And that the film Le Mans had just come out. And, uh, of course, that was me. Uh, although when I saw the film, Steve McQueen and all this, I didn't see any really overweight Jewish guys with thick glasses driving. So that perturbed me because I thought buying the car would do that and, you know, make me desirable, which is the only reason overweight Jewish kids buy Porsches and jacks and things like that. It didn't help. It didn't help at all. But I filled a million bucks in the car, went down and filled up the car at dividend bonded gas, filled up the whole tank. I think it cost like $4. Gas was like 11 cents a gallon. And I just drove and drove and drove and drove and drove and drove and drove. Anyway, comes time, late August, to go out to the University of Colorado. And of course, the car being mid-engine, it did have a front and a rear trunk or boot, as they say here, still held zero. Wouldn't barely even hold a tennis racket. Certainly wouldn't hold any golf golf clubs. So the folks had to pack up the Oldsmobile station wagon to bring all my stuff out to university. And then, of course, they were going to go down from Boulder down to Colorado Springs, stay at Ryder's Manor, and golf for a week, which was one of their favorite holidays. So Sioux City to Boulder, Colorado. We would go south to Omaha, about 100 miles, make a right, and go due west out to Colorado on I-80. And um, it's going to be about a 10-hour drive. And I drove the Porsche, naturally, and my folks followed in the station wagon. Well, I had about 70 donuts the first 20 miles because we'd bought like dozens of donuts. And I had them in the seat next to me. And I had the um, cassette player just rocking and it was loud, and I was looking, and the folks were kind of kind of keeping up in the rear vision mirror, but, you know, we'd kind of to and fro and to and row. And I was bored, and so I just ate donut after donut after donut. Remember, I was a little bit prone to being overweight. Anyway, the sugar rush got to me, and uh, we pulled over eventually, be long before Omaha, not even an hour into the trip, and pulled over the side of the road, and they came up to the car. They thought I was, you know, sick or something like that. I said, no, I'm just really, really tired. Uh, Dad, do you want to drive the car? Dad was just delighted. He wanted to drive that Porsche. He thought it would make him cool, too, although he already had a chick. He had my mom, so he didn't need the car to troll chicks or anything like that. And so I got in the wagon with my mom, and this was 1971. There were no cell phones. We didn't have walkie-talkies or anything like that. So the plan was to meet at Bosselman's Truck Stop 
in Grand Island, Nebraska. Another absolute, you know, toilet in Nebraska. And then swapped in. That was going to be approximately a little over two hours from where we were just north of Omaha. So since we'd started out relatively early in the morning, that should get us there at lunchtime. And we'd break for lunch and swap cars. Well, I can't remember what happened, but I fell asleep. And then I woke up. And my mom was kind of whimpering a bit and looking nervous. She was one of the nine worst drivers on the planet, um, being Jewish and female. Um, if she'd been Chinese, she couldn't have gotten behind the wheel. But being Jewish and female, she just couldn't drive. And she drove till she was 92 when she passed away. In fact, she actually died in her pretty much in her car. She got a stroke in her car in like 100-degree weather, 45-degree weather in Florida, had a horrible stroke, and, and died days later. So she was, <laughs> I know it's not funny, but I can't, she was literally driving till the day she died. She was the worst driver ever. God knows how many people were killed inadvertently while she was driving. Anyway, she was kind of whimpering and freaked out, and her eyes were kind of wild-eyed and everything. And I wake up, uh, you know, what's what's happening? What's happening? He says, I, I, I haven't seen your father. I said, I haven't seen your father. Yeah, haven't seen your, can't find your father. Where are we? Well, we've circled around Bosselman's truck stop in Grand Island. And I'd lost him about maybe an hour ago, and I thought he'd be here, but he's not He's not here. I'm scared he's lost. I hope he's okay. says, oh, my God, all I could think of was my car, my car. He's got my Porsche. Fuck! Anyway, so we pull into the truck stop, and we drive around. This is a giant truck stop. This is the most ginormous truck stop. You could land spacecraft on this truck stop, at least in 1971. And this is halfway between Chicago and L.A., so long-haul truckers, you know, um, who've been, you know, doing meth all night long and, you know, killing prostitutes and whatever long-haul truckers do. No, I'm just kidding. We'd stop there and sleep overnight and fill up, fill up for long haul. And we're driving everywhere, everywhere. We cannot find my dad. There's no way to get a hold of him. There's no phone in the car. Anyway, I said, well, what time are we supposed to meet here? We're supposed to meet at 12. Well, anyway, it's like 1. So we go over to a coin phone, and my mom doesn't know what to do. She goes, maybe he went on. And said, no, he would have waited. He would have waited. He's got my car. You know, you're his wife. He probably would have waited. Well, I came up with a genius plan. I thought the easiest way to find my dad would be to have the police help. So I went to a coin phone, and I called the sheriff's department. Didn't have 911 back then. I can't remember how I got a hold of him. And I reported the car stolen. Yes, I did. I reported the car stolen. I thought that would be an excellent way to get the police onto it. And I said I did believe that there was a firearm in the trunk, which was a family-owned firearm. So um, I thought that would just give them a bit more incentive. None of this, of course, did I explain to my mom. And uh, I gave the payphone where we were at the truck stop. And I told my mom that I told the police and they were looking and that they suggested that we should, we should stay there. Well, my mom got into an absolute frenzy and panic and, you know, thinking, oh, it was my dad kidnapped? Was he carjacked? Did the car go off the side of the road? Did he get too excited because it was a Porsche and, you know, flip it or do whatever? All I'm thinking is, oh, my car, my car, my car, my car. Now, my mom 
was freaking out. And um, I was starting to freak out a little bit, too. I actually was worried about my dad, believe it or not. Second to my car, of course. And we kept calling the sheriff's office. And they finally said, why don't you check into a hotel? They didn't know how long it would be. Don't just sit in the car. So we gave them the number of the little hotel at the truck stop. Anyway, hours are passing by. My mom's trying to watch TV. But, of course, she is freaking out. And um, I'm a bit complacent. I've got confidence that this is all going to come to a good end because I was quite hopeful and I'd never had any tragedy in my life, so why would there ever be any tragedy? Anyway, four hours later, the phone rings, and it's the sheriff from Sterling, Colorado, a mere 282 miles due west of where we were. And they had... Um, Pulled over the car and brought my dad in, ostensibly for custody, for stealing a vehicle, until he produced identification, which the surname mysteriously matched the title surname, which was in my name, and explained there must have been some miscommunication. The car wasn't stolen. He was just driving because his son, me, was tired. Well, they called the truck stop and... My mom explained it all away, not telling me how absolutely apoplectically nuclear stage 15 DEFCON 9 upset and angry my father was. Now, she was more scared of going the four-hour drive to Sterling, Colorado to see my dad than she was at thinking that he was dead in a fiery crash just moments before. And uh, I was quite puzzled why I reported the car stolen and not explained this to anyone. Well, I thought mission accomplished. Sheriffs were on it. No gun, no harm, no foul. My car is in perfect condition. And what had happened is that my dad had gotten there a few minutes early. My mom had lagged and lagged and lagged and fallen way below the speed limit and was an hour behind. And my dad, after sitting around for an hour at the truck stop, thought, Jesus, my mom must have missed it and gone on. So he made the logical engineering decision. He was an engineer, got back in the car and went on trying to find my mom. And lo and behold, got all the way to Sterling, Colorado, where he had been worrying about my mom quite a bit until two sheriff's vehicles pulled him over at gunpoint. And I think you know the rest of the story. It's amazing I'm alive today. But I drove the rest of the way from Sterling, Colorado into Boulder. And the rest is history, except for the Porsche, which had a strange, charmed, and then fateful life that I will share with you right after this. Yes, it's that time each week for what is your podcaster baking, eating, and drinking? Because I know you care. Well, just yesterday morning, we made an amazing, you knew that was coming, an amazing lemon drizzle cake. 
This is, uh, it's, it's a loaf. It actually goes into a loaf pan, but it's something that my wife and I do from time to time because it lasts for three or four days and you can just nibble and nibble and nibble and nibble. And when you eat little bits at a time, you don't feel like you're getting a lot of calories. But when you see what you've been nibbling over the course of a day, well, it can add up. And the deliciousness and the oozing fragrance and moisture of the lemon with the sugar just keeps it so astonishingly fresh, which is really just three juiced lemons, castor sugar, low, you know, normal like cake, loaf recipe, and a couple little secret ingredients, lots of butter. Oh my God. It's so amazing. So amazing. And what have I had to drink the past few days and nights? Well, I have discovered the nectar of the gods. I have discovered the amazing Anejo Codigo 1530 tequila. Actually, from my digital friend, Swim Charlie Swim, Anthony Greco on Twitter, who said, it's amazing. And it is. Now, if you're going to talk tequila, per the Tequila Regulatory Council, only spirit producers in the five approved states of tequila production, Jalisco, Tamaulipas, Nayarit, Michoacan, also known for other things, and Guantuato, that only distill the juice of the agave tequilana Weber plant, the blue agave, may officially label it tequila, and only if said spirit contains at least 51% agave sugars from the blue Weber plant. Supplemented by other sugars, can it legally bear the name tequila? So, whether you choose to believe it or not, many credit Jimmy Buffett in his song Margaritaville with ensuring tequila's place in the pantheon of America's most beloved spirits. I mean, really. Have you ever been to one of his concerts? So, Corrigo 1530 Tequila was founded only a few short years ago, but this lowland distillery has been producing superlative tequila for several years generations. It's produced at the Via Tocuane Tequila La Juntas plant, located in Amatitian, Jalisco. And the story behind the brand's origins go back a few years to when co-founder Federico Fede Vaughn would routinely share this nameless tequila with his close friends over a game of golf. Fede had introduced it to Ron Snyder, the former CEO of the popular Crocs footwear company. I fucking hate Crocs, but they are successful and I do like success. But rather than just, Crocs are the gayest shoes ever, and nobody looks good in Crocs. But anyway, shortly after that, and rather just occasionally enjoying the fine agave spirit, the two decided to form a company. And shortly after, another mutual friend, Superstar country musician George Strait was invited to come and try this tequila, and as you would have it, the three found a new common love. And as the popular saying goes, and the rest was history. One very intriguing fact about Codigo 1530 is it probably bears the Jerusalem cross as the symbol of its heritage story. And furthermore, this iconic cross sits atop the Jalisco coat of arms and dates back to 1530, when after the colonial struggle, Amatitian was officially recognized as a city of New Galencia, and Jalisco was given a coat of arms 
by the Spanish monarchy. This tequila has been considered the best of the best by experts. It is astonishing. It is not cheap. This is it's about 100 bucks a bottle for a 375. Yeah, ridiculous until you taste it and you go, oh my God, I can never have any other tequila. But I balance that out with a nice, cheap Montepulciano de Abruzzo Italian wine. 2016 Illico Illuminati. And everybody loves a good Montepulciano, which is only about 15 bucks a bottle. And that went with the uh, beautiful meals that we had this week. So the amazing tequila, the high price spread, and the very inexpensive and modest Montepulciano. So whatever your palate is, whatever your budget is, something for everyone. Highly recommend. No. By the way, while we are enjoying those beautiful intro tunes from The Great British Bake Off, which was written by Tom Howe, and I bought the ringtone also for my phone, which I don't use anymore. But yes, it's paid for. Okay, Tom? Fine. Um, amazing song. We just started watching the Canadian Great, the great Canadian Bake Off um, on Foxtel down here, which is fantastic. Of all the spinoffs, this one's actually the best. It's got an absolutely groovy French-Canadian superstar judge named Bruno Feldeisen. Feldesign. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it. Sorry, Bruno. And more importantly, it also has Dan Levy, son of Eugene Levy of Schitt's Creek fame and, you know, so many, so many films like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and things like that. And Dan Levy, who looks a lot like his dad, but has the best wardrobe. Very, very jealous. Very, very jealous. Amazing wardrobe. Go, Dan. And a couple of uh, groovy female judges who are very smart. The uh, amazing Rochelle Adonis. What a name. Adonis. And Julia Chan. It is fantastic. And very talented bakers, these Canadians. Yes, it's the entertainment hour. Well, it's the entertainment couple minutes in the hour. But it sounds a bit more official to say it's the entertainment hour. Uh, a couple things coming that you really have to be aware of uh, that were just announced. And one of them is a new Nicolas Cage film, which is a film actually about Nicolas Cage, kind of a film noir and um, cinema verite combination, combination all together. And it is called, strangely enough, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And it looks um, charmingly bizarre. And a great documentary that you won't want to miss um, that I managed to catch called Robin's Wish, which is a horrifically wrenching look at Robin Williams' last days. In fact, it's put onto it by Owen Gleiberman at uh, Variety, who is actually one of my favorite re reviewers. And uh, it's really a documentary that uh, the comedian's widow, Susan Schneider-Williams, recalls from one of the first times that she can tell was something was seriously off 
when Robin had called her from Vancouver, where he was shooting the third night at the museum film, and he couldn't calm himself down. He was having a panic attack. He couldn't remember his lines, couldn't remember one line of dialogue, and he was absolutely freaking out. And um, he yelled at her on the phone, I don't know what's going on. It's not, I'm not me anymore. Um, my mind is going. And uh, it, his, his Louis body dementia, which was ultimately what led to his demise. And um, it's kind of like Parkinson's, but it's kind of like dementia. It's kind of like schizophrenia, but it is a huge degenerative, horrible disease and led to his ultimate downfall. Um, I can't say it's uplifting, but it is ridiculously heart-wrenching. And I love documentaries, as you know. And I was a big fan of Robin Williams. And in fact, Mork and Mindy was filmed in Boulder, Colorado, the house there just blocks from my campus. Uh, the, it is available on Amazon and iTunes and all the usual suspects. Now, Whoa! What the fuck was that? What was that? Did you see that? No, you didn't see it. In case you missed it. And you did. You missed it. We're going to talk this week about Out of the Furnace. One of my favorite, in case you missed it. Because nobody really saw that film. It's a 2013 American action drama film directed by the astonishing Scott Cooper. You might know Scott Cooper from Black Mass, Hostels, and the award-winning Crazy Heart, but Out of the Furnace is my favorite. And it's a screenplay written by Cooper and Brad Inglesby, produced by Ridley Scott, amazing, Leonardo DiCaprio, amazing. But the film stars Christian Bale, one of my all-time favorites, Casey Affleck. Now, he gets he, he doesn't get enough credit. He uh, He's kind of the poor Affleck, so to speak. Everybody uh, kind of goes for Ben and stuff like that. But Casey Affleck, you know, uh, Manchester by the Sea and, you know, a hundred other films, he, he is an absolute champion actor. Woody Harrelson, who plays the scariest motherfucker you will ever just about see. Zoe Saldana, Forrest Whitaker, um, Willem Dafoe, and Sam Shepard who passed away not long after this. I got to meet Sam Shepard many years ago, and it was briefly, and it was outside a cinema, and um, he just oozed coolness. The guy could do anything. Amazing writer, amazing actor. He's. I miss Sam Shepard. Anyway, this film, which 11 people saw, regrettably, is about a Pennsylvania steel mill worker, played by Christian Bale, who's one of the five greatest actors of all time, as far as I'm concerned, and his Iraq War veteran brother Rodney, played by Casey Affleck, who just can't adjust to civilian life. It's got kind of the vibe of the deer hunter, you know, the Pennsylvania steel town, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's rough, and everyone there is tough. And Rodney makes money fighting bare knuckle for bar owner and small-time criminal John Petty, played by Willem Dafoe, who runs an illegal gambling operation, but but becomes so indebted due to the gambling losses that he begs Petty for a big money fight. After Petty reluctantly arranges this with a ruthless backwoods criminal gang, Rodney disappears and his brother tries to find out what happened. Now, what I love about this film is it's really about the bond of family. Who in your family 
what family doesn't have someone who is the hard luck person, uh, the one that hasn't had the breaks, or the one that can't get a break, or the one that doesn't see the breaks? There's always someone in family or extended family that's the black sheep, and Casey Affleck plays that. And Christian Bale has his own ghosts. Everybody in this cast, and yes, there are black people in the cast, and there are Hispanic people in the cast, and there are gay people in the cast, and there's um, even a gay DP in the cast. I mean, this would have actually qualified for the best picture thing going on that we talked about, the inclusion thing. Um, so maybe they can re-release it. But it... Uh, it got a pretty wide theatrical release in 2013, but it didn't even earn its money back, and it got mixed reviews. I think people thought it was a bit convoluted and a bit long and stuff like that, and they just didn't get it. But it was about if you love someone in your family, no matter how fucked up they are, no matter what they do, that's really, really wrong. That bond of family where you'll go out and do whatever it takes to save him or her if you love them. And it's a powerful, powerful film. And it's about the attempt of revenge. I'm not going to do a spoiler there. Is there revenge or does he fail? But um, wow, um, astonishing film. And at the end, the uh, music by Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder, the song Release Me, which was re remixed and remastered for the final scene of the film, is unfucking forgettable Let's just say that, unfucking forgettable So... Just search for this and find it and absolutely love it. It's a killer film. By the way, just a note, I know that I'm sniffling a little bit, and I have been since my morning walk. I think the mask was really driving me a bit nuts, and all the trees and everything out, when you have the nose the size of mine, um, allergies and things like that tend to be a, a, bit of a uh, bit of a drama. So excuse me for the occasional sniffling. No, I don't have COVID. Maybe I do, but uh, excuse that. I am not going to go back and edit every one of those little sniffs out because I'm too lazy, and my crack production team up in picturesque Pinole, California is actually in the process of moving to Vallejo, Vallejo, California, and uh, as yet, they, uh, they're just too busy. They're just too busy. So much to do. So little time. Big fires up there, 120-degree weather. And crazy. It was 129 in Woodland Hills, California the other day, which is 49 degrees centigrade. So just crazy weather going on, going on. And also just kind of reprising and putting a coda on that Academy Awards thing. I had a brief chat with the egalitarian that's uh, in the house here, um, my lovely wife, who is truly egalitarian. And inclusion is great. I'm all for inclusion. It's just that most people don't like change, and most people don't like being forced to do things. I hate orders and rules. And yeah, you can make whatever film you want, but the fact that you do have to comply to be considered for the best picture does really irk me. So let's not take things out of context, folks. Let's not take... He's racist! He's a racist! Racist and homophobic. <laughs> That's the problem that I have. That is the problem that I have. If you disagree with someone, they usually play that card. But not my egalitarian wife, 
who wants to make the world a better place. And I do agree with her. Now, you're probably wondering, what happened to that Porsche? He hinted, he hinted at an ill-fated ending for the Porsche. Well, let's fast forward four years from that trip to Colorado in 1971. In 1975, I had decided I wanted to go for a holiday in Las Vegas. And a fellow that I knew at university had been badgering me for about six months to buy my car. Every few weeks, calling me up, I really like to buy your car, really like to buy your car. And I had been thinking about selling the car and getting something different. And uh, the offer kept going up and up and up. And then one day, when I was convinced I wanted to take this holiday and go with a couple friends to Vegas. Um, he said, I'll give you cash, blank amount for the car. And it was a bit ridiculous. He was obsessed with my car. And um, Stuart Turner. And Stuart paid me the cash, gave him the car, said, we got to go to uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles and do the sign over and all that and stuff like that. And he says, no, no, we can do that next week because I was leaving for Vegas and he was going skiing in Aspen. And on that day, I flew out to Vegas and uh, was having a good time. And I, I'm sorry I sold the car, but, you know, cars, cars must go. And uh, had four great days in Vegas, friends, stuff like that, and came back. And then uh, when I got back, I thought, geez, I feel like going skiing and uh, having a few days skiing, go from the desert to the mountains, which was a great thing about Boulder being so accessible to everything. I thought, you know what? I haven't spoken to my folks in a while. I'll give them a call. I haven't heard. You know, my mom worries when she doesn't hear from me too long anyway. So I call the phone, and my mom answers, and I go, hi, Mom. And she goes, Oh, oh, you're alive. <laughs> yes, yes, great observation, detective, I'm alive. What's up? She goes, oh, my God. And then I hear a click on the other line, and my dad's on the other line and goes, oh, my God, Bob, you're alive. Where have you been? And I, I just got no idea what's going on. I got no idea. I said, well, I went to Las Vegas with some with some friends, with uh, Eric and and Will and a couple of friends. And I go, oh, my God, we were just ready to come out there because of the accident. And I go, what? What are you talking about? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, this, what have I done? What have I done in some stupor that I didn't even know or, or whatever? Anyway, to make a long story short, my good friend who bought my car indeed went straight to Aspen in the car and indeed went straight off the side of a mountain road near Rabbit Ears Pass and crashed the car and was killed in it. And because the title had not been signed over and everything, the license was still in my name, the sheriff in Pitkin County had called my parents and said that there was a car crash. With this particular license plate, this car registered to Robert Galinsky. And they had pretty much thought I was dead and we're going to leave on a plane to come out and identify my body. The Porsche was gone forever, and as was my friend, which was just too freaked out. So the good news is that my parents were so elated that I was alive. They couldn't be mad at me for anything. But um, then I got chastised a few weeks later for not doing the paperwork and, and things like that and calling them causing them immense grief 
and stress, as I, as I did for a while. So that was the coda on the Porsche, and uh, I still miss it. I still see that car from time to time on car sales, and I go, oh, I wish I still had that collector's item now. But um, that's the rise and fall of the Porsche. And I know some people say, could the story have been any sadder? <laughs> yeah. I could have waited and not gotten cash before I sold it or been holding a check I couldn't cash. No, just that would be, yeah, that would be sadder. That would be sadder. Anyway, I kind of forgot to just share one thing in the in case you missed it. And that's three identical strangers. Three identical strangers is one of the most bizarre twisting documentaries, again, documentaries, that came out a couple of years ago. It won the Sundance Audience Award. And it's uh, it had a cinema release last year for about a week. And uh, it's been on Foxtel. It's been on uh, Netflix and stuff. And this is a hard one to do without spoilers, but search this out. Search this out. It is about three kids that are triplets, but they didn't know they existed until they were put together by happenstance, identical triplets, and how they got to be raised by three separate families. True story, unbelievable. That's the other in case you missed. In case you missed it. Now, can you hear that sound? It's the sound of the mighty theremin coming. Which can only mean science, bitches! Yes, and today in Science, Bitches, we're going to be talking about getting the First Amendment wrong, the right to free speech for you non-Americans. And this amazing article was from Woodrow Hartzog and Neil Richards in one of my favorites, the Boston Globe. Think the last time you changed your profile picture on Facebook or Instagram. When you uploaded that, did you assume you were agreeing to let anyone do whatever the fuck they want with that picture, including putting you in a facial recognition database, track your location, and every photo of you on the web forever, plus a month? Facial recognition company Clearview AI seems to think so. And the company is lawyering up to build a First Amendment argument to help justify its dubious and dangerous facial recognition business. All of our privacy hangs in the balance. Literally, never start with literally, but it's nice to divert. Literally, Clearview AI scrapes billions, billions of photos from the internet, adds facial recognition, and then sells them to government, whoops, law enforcement, uh-oh, and immigration agencies. It is the immigration, migra, la migra. Clearview AI apparently wants to assert a free right speech to disseminate publicly available photos. And it also wants to gut Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act, arguing that enforcing the statute against the company would violate their First Amendment. Now, 
What does this mean? And basically it means Clearview AI is completely wrong about privacy and wrong about the First Amendment. It would have you believe that the moment you post a photo of yourself on Facebook or walk outside your house, you abandon any privacy interest in your image or your whereabouts because they are now, quote unquote, public. This is the case whether you're going to the grocery store or to a Black Lives Matter rally. Clearview AI's position isn't just wrong as a matter of common sense, but as a matter of law as well. Nevertheless, its legal team is sure to point out in language in pre-digital court cases about how there is less privacy in public and to appeal to vague notions of publicly accessible information. They'll wave this concept of public info like it's a talisman that allows them to do anything that they want. Facial recognition, kids, doesn't just jeopardize our privacy. It's a tool for shutting down expressive activity as well. Imagine, think now think this through. Every single person who protested against racial injustice this summer being identified and tagged as a troublemaker. Well, I guess that's not really bad. Uh, but no, seriously, in government systems. Imagine every random photo of you at a party, restaurant, or event logged to reconstruct your geolocation history. Can you start to see where this is going? If Clearview AI were to prevail and foist its humongously dangerous reading of the First Amendment on our law, the rest of us would all be worse off. This article link is on my show notes. This is a huge lawsuit and a huge danger to freedom. It's people crying free speech, yelling fire in a crowded theater times one bazillion. And uh, this isn't just signing the I agree thing when you download an app on Apple and hoping everything's going to be okay. These are things that could really come to fuck up your life. So read this article. Really going to be an interesting one to follow. And uh, kudos to Mr. Hotchog and Mr. Richards for this amazing article. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! And an ass-kicking outfit it is today, because I woke up feeling like a rocket. Last week, we had to talk about my wife's beautiful apparel, because I was not up to the task. I was not up, but today, I am. And when I got up, it was a little bit chilly, but a little bit sunny, and I felt, wow, I feel like I'm going skiing somewhere, and... If you're going skiing, you would wear Montclair. Montclair is a luxury fashion brand mostly known for its ski wear, which was founded in 1952 by René Ramion and André Vincent. Montclair took its name from the abbreviation of Montestier de Clermont, an alpine town near Grenoble, France, where the Olympics were held, the Winter Olympics. The first quilted jackets they made were conceived for protecting workers from the cold, back in the 50s, and they used these jackets on top of their overalls in this small mountain establishment. The first to note them and realize their potential was French mountaineer Lionel Terre. The results saw the specialist range Montclair pour Lionel Terre, and in 1954, the year after I was born, Montclair quilted jackets were chosen to equip the Italian expedition to K2, 
which culminated with the conquest of the Earth's second highest summit by Achille, Campanone, and Lino Lacadelli. Moncler also accompanied the French expedition which reached the summit of Makalu in 1955 and was the official supplier for expeditions in Alaska, organized also by Lionel Terre in 1964 and on the occasion of the Grenoble Winter Olympics in 1968. Moncler became the official supplier of the French national downhill skiing team, which is when I got so hooked on skiing, the Winter Olympics, and um, just went crazy. That's when, that's when I was introduced to skiing and looking cool skiing. Now, I didn't want to be overheated, nor did I want to be cold, and Montclair makes a medium range, which is just perfect for the Australian winter climate, and um, it's kind of what I call a shirt jacket, but it's a little bit of a sweater. It's a zip top, and it can be worn either on its own or over a t-shirt or something like that, and I threw on some Montclair track pants with it, and uh, I felt like I was going skiing, or a little bit of après ski, even though I can't leave my apartment and go more than five kilometers away here in lockdown. So pictures on the show notes. They make amazing products. Um, they're not cheap, but they're not overpriced. There's a store here in town and uh, out at Chadston, which may reopen one day when this is all over. And the staff out there is astonishing. Tremendous staff out there. And uh, for men and women, you'll be hooked on it absolutely hooked on it. Speaking of holidays, let alone ski holidays, we, we had to cancel our sojourn to beautiful Noosa up in Queensland because the borders are closed and we can't leave our lockdown here. It's a double whammy. And if you've never been to Australia, Queensland's kind of like uh, the Florida of Australia. It's, you know, the warm weather and lots to do and beaches and diving and coral reefs and things like that. But, um, had to cancel my Jetstar flight and my wife and I, and we got a voucher. That's all good down here. But uh, I thought it was great that the woman on the chat line um, said, would you um, like to donate $2 um, out of your voucher to fly carbon free? And I uh, had the reminder that basically since there's no fucking airplanes going anywhere in Australia right now, it's a pretty, pretty carbon free aviation environment at the moment and uh, of course i didn't use the f-bomb but she did send me a little smiley face on the chat line which is great now i was going to tell you about the fire ants experience how speaking of florida being florida being the um, kind of cipher the avatar for queensland how my home that was infested with fire ants in the yard um how I tried to solve it with 10 gallons of gasoline and why that didn't end well, but we'll save that for next week. And uh, if you're in Australia, I hope you're watching TV and watching the Budget Direct insurance ads, which are always the best insurance ads, but the one now with the dog with the Star Wars laser that goes crazy and cuts through everything. I can watch that ad 700 times. It is so absolutely amazing, as you would know. So, thanks so much for listening. Um, you can tell my ebullience is just sky high, um, not letting things get to me too much, not too 
too much. And uh, I hope that you're doing the same also. Because optimism, optimism is a choice, as Seth Godin would say. If your team's up by 30 points at halftime, it's not optimistic to expect that you're going to win. It's a realistic assessment. Optimism is an attitude and a choice. It involves context and focus. We are not deluding ourselves with the reassurance that everything's going to be okay, because that's not productive. Instead, we're committed to finding things we can contribute to, work on, and improve. We're devoted to seeking out useful lessons and to discovering where the benefit of the doubt might be helpful. Positive thinking doesn't solve every problem, but it's a much better tool than negative thinking. And if not, you need a checkup from the neck up. Have an awesome week. Do something astonishing. Try something ridiculously outside of your comfort zone. And make sure that if you haven't subscribed, you don't do anything until you do. I'll be watching. I'll be watching you with my Clearview AI artificial intelligence. Sayonara. Until next week. Arrivederci. Bye for now. Ciao, ciao. Meow.